Welcome to A Tribe Called Yes, the podcast that brings you closer to the world's most notorious risk takers, trailblazers, and enemies of the status quo. Now, here's your host, Darren K. Roberts. Today, let's welcome Emmanuel Acho, former NFL linebacker and Texas native. He was drafted in 2012 by the Cleveland Browns, and while playing football, he earned his master's degree in sports psychology. Recently, he has also been described as an activist for joining the Become One initiative in hopes of starting an open dialogue about police brutality. Welcome to the tribe, Emmanuel Acho. First question, what is the one daily routine that creates separation between you and your competitors? I would say strategizing, hmm. right? And at a basic level, that doesn't seem that uh, intense. That doesn't seem that different. Uh, but Emmanuel Acho, the person, before I ever put anything in play, whether on the football field, in the classroom, um, on the broadcasting studio, whatever that looks like for me, I plan everything out steps and steps and steps down the line, similar uh, similar to a chess player, right? You're, you're making one move knowing that this move that you're making will affect your move four, five, six steps down the line. That's how I approach my life. Um, and so everything I did, whether it be going to grad school immediately after my, my first year in the NFL, knowing that in four years I'll be done with grad school, I'll have a master's in sports psychology, and be able to implement that into the broadcasting field, all that's just basic strategy. So strategy and strategizing is uh, what would separate me. Where did you get that from? I mean, that's that's something that's difficult just for, I think, anyone whether it's a CEO or a teacher, but that focus on strategizing, can you point back to a particular time in your life where you realize, hey, I've got to get really good at sort of putting the steps in place and thinking through the steps that I need in order to get to a goal? Yeah, um, I was in Nigeria uh, during, I want to say, my the latter of my college years. And um, one of the people on the trip, I go to Nigeria every summer for a medical mission trip with my family. And talk more about it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So my, my parents were born and raised in Nigeria. Um, and so my brother and I, my brother who's going on his sixth year in the NFL, uh, my brother and myself and then our two older sisters, we would go with my parents, 40 doctors and nurses to Nigeria to a rural village out there and just do free medical work. Um, we're essentially their annual checkup. They don't have a Walgreens. They don't have a CVS. They have us. And um, we go in there, perform surgeries. Um, ophthalmology, remove cataracts, provide them with glasses, all types of stuff. So while I'm on this trip, one of the doctors, a doctor from Detroit, she tells me, you know, I really see you as a strategist. And nobody had told me that before because I had I had never yet figured out what I was, what I wanted to be. But she said she really saw me as a strategist. And so from then on, I was able to now define my actions um, rather than just acting. I actually had a definition for what it was I was doing. And and since then, I now have been able to see the benefits of, you know, putting all the dominoes in order before you push the first one. Because if you put them all in order, you'll have a much more, um, you know, impactful effect if you have everything lined up as opposed to if you just arbitrarily act. Let me ask you this. Now, this is you've got probably more projects going on than anybody I know. I'm not just saying that. I mean, from, you know, radio, TV, um, we'll talk about the, the YouTube clip and. How do you identify which projects warrant your time and energy? Like how are you how are you able to sift through all of the opportunities that come across your plate? It's a great question. I think uh, I think there are two answers, right? What makes you happy and what makes you money? <laughs> right? <laughs> so 
Um, I, I, there's a fine line because uh, there's a quote I, I love, and it's it's money isn't everything, but it sure ranks up there with oxygen, right? <laughs> so I, I I always try to figure out what'll make me happy and what'll make me money. Do you find now those intersect a lot of times? I mean, are, are you? Are you finding that you're more the opportunities are more on the money making side of the ledger than the happiness end? And so, what what does it look like? Yeah, man, you, you hope they intersect. <laughs> <laughs> they don't always, um, but thankfully, I've, I've put myself in a position to where a lot of what I I have to do, I want to do. Hmm. Right? Whether that's you know this week I have to MC a fashion show, UT's fashion show uh, on Thursday, and then I have to cover the spring game, the Longhorn spring game. Thankfully, that's making me both uh, happy and making me money. Right? And so, thankfully, I've put myself in a position to to be rewarded with these opportunities where they do intersect. A lot of people can't say that, um, but it is a lot of hard work because hmm. right now, being in grad school, having to wake up every day at eight doesn't necessarily make me happy. Um, but there again, it's all strategy. So thankfully I've put myself in a position where those intersect. Now you're very intentional about building the Emmanuel Acho brand. What does that brand represent to you? Yeah. Uh, Emmanuel Acho, the brand, I think a lot of people try to build, they try to think of their work as a brand, right? If I'm mm. an entrepreneur, then my startup, whatever that looks like, that is my company. That is my brand. I put my entire focus around that. Well, when you are an entertainer or when you are in the public eye in any fold, then you are your own brand, right? And so right now, um, I say that's a good question because right now I'm mapping that out. I was at a, a private symposium with Gary Keller, Gary Keller being the owner of Keller Williams Realty, largest realty company in the, in the nation. And he was really talking about making a business model. And while he was talking about a business model for business, I thought about that for Emmanuel Acho because I am my own brand and I am my own business. So right now I'm really trying to figure out the five most important people in my life as far as elevating my brand, whether it's my publicist, my agent, a broadcasting agent, uh, someone that handles the music aspect of me. But I've really mapped it out into Emmanuel Acho, the athlete, the TV personality, the philanthropist, I'm the musician, right? And now I'm trying to figure out who are going to head up those five categories. Mm. Go back to your days at playing at UT. When you thought about your brand as a student athlete here on campus, what would that answer have been during your time here? Man, when I was at UT, I was really just focused on having a good image. My brother, again, he he was one year older than me at Texas, and he won. He was in the business school. Smartest guy I've ever been around. He won the academic Heisman. Um, so smartest player in college football. He's top 20 smartest athletes in the world. He got listed that in 2011. Last year, he got listed top 10 smartest athletes in the NFL. Super smart dude. I, I say all that to say that he set the bar extremely high. And so when I traveled across the 40 acres, I remembered all eyes potentially were going to be on me. So I couldn't embarrass him. I couldn't embarrass myself. So when I was at Texas, my only brand idea was make people think you're a great guy. You don't have to be, <laughs> you don't like you can, you can work on being a great guy eventually, but just make sure that people think you're a great guy. How did that differ from teammates? You don't have to mention names, but yeah. do you think that there were other people on the team that had a different philosophy than you did? Yeah. I really just think that a lot of athletes on my team in the NFL in general, just a lot more short-sighted. Right. They're worried about the now. They're not worried about, you know, what's next. And so that differed in that. I know that if, if people have a good 
view of me, then that'll help me in, in, in my later career. I didn't always plan on going to the NFL. I really didn't plan on going to the NFL until, you know, after my sophomore year. But I knew if the businessman or the CEO that came out to practice and met me, if he liked me, then that would pay great dividends going forward. So I really just think that the biggest downfall, so many athletes are, are so nearsighted or so short-sighted. They don't see beyond tomorrow. And I, I hear you keep talking about, you know, in a way, relationships and relationships and relationships and sort of building these relationships. How does that look for you? I mean, I, I, you're an intentional person. So before you go to hear a talk from Keller or before you go into a classroom or before you go on a free agency visit, what are you thinking about in terms of how you're going to build your, your network and continue to, to make that grow? So I'm a big quote guy. Um, and again, one of my other favorite quotes, your network is your net worth, hmm. right? And so your network is your net worth. And so if, if, if my value is, is contingent upon my network, then my network better be super strong. So I don't meet people um, with the intention of forgetting them. I meet people with the intention of cultivating that relationship and seeing where it'll go, seeing how it'll blossom and seeing what it'll lead to. And, and that's paid so many dividends in my life, meeting one of the producers at Longhorn Network in my time here. And then the head of South by Southwest Sports needed someone to speak on a panel back in 2013. So she reached out to her friend, a producer at Longhorn Network. The producer at Longhorn Network recommends me. I end up speaking on the panel at South by Southwest Sports. I cultivate the relationship with the head of South by Southwest Sports. She asked me to become on the advisory board. Advisory board member, um, now the head of South by Southwest Sports, is speaking on a panel with a lady named Christy. And now I start working with Christy, who then becomes kind of my publicist. And so it, it all these different relationships, you never know where it'll lead. But I just am very intentional with meeting someone, but then also following up in and learning. Someone can always teach you something, and hopefully you can always teach someone else something. So not just meeting a person, but seeing how can I learn from you, and if there's anything I can offer you, what can I offer you? So important. Your method of follow-up, I think this is where so many people fall off. They're able to make the introduction. They're able to have a conversation. But going from business card to cultivating a relationship, how do you approach that process? Yeah, Um I think the biggest thing is you just have to approach that process, right? Most people just, oh, here's my business card. And that's that. But what's a business card is just a sheet of paper. Nobody cares about this little, you know, two by two inch, sheet, you know, square sheet of paper. It's how do you people care about relationships, right? Let me talk to you. Let me hear what you have to say. So I approach that process. You know, it's not so much the how, but it's just the doing because most people won't even send a follow up email or, hey, let's grab lunch or, hey, let's let's hop on a phone call. Why is that? I've always wondered that. You think it's fear? Is it laziness? What keeps people from doing? Great question. I think a little bit of both. I think I just think it's a lack of knowledge. Right. If, if someone knew that, hey following up with this person would lead to X, Y, and Z. Well, then they would do it. But again, people in general are just so short-sighted. They're only worried about the now. So I think it's, I think it's laziness. I, I think it could be fear, but then it's just, you don't see the greater good. That's that I think is a biggest issue. So I just understand, I don't know where this could lead, but there's potential. So let's at least let's vet it. Let's figure it all out. You talked about the brother, the impact that he's had on you. Is there a business person 
that you look at and you say, okay, there, there are some traits and some qualities and an approach to business that I want to emulate. Honestly, not really. Hmm. Right. My, my dad, a super entrepreneur. Um, again, he was born and raised in Nigeria. He came over to the U S in the late seventies to be a pastor. And then he got his doctorate in psychology. So he became a marital counselor. Then he opened up his own church and he has different business ventures in Nigeria along with in the U S. So I think that's where I get the trait from. Um, who do I look to? It's really just innate. It's just in me to seek, to hustle, to grind, to meet the next person, to try to create the next idea, to try to be a part of the next idea. Um, because I've learned through trying to create the next idea that it's much easier to just tag along. Okay, I got I to interrupt <laughs> you. I got to interrupt you. You said innate, and this is attention, this nature versus nurture when it comes to hustle. Uh-huh. I'm trying to get at the heart of this thing. Do you think it's an innate quality that you have this hustle mentality? I mean, that you're not going to stop. I mean, you, you're you up at all times of the day and night. You're producing content. You, you see you on TV, hear you on radio. Is that hustle? Is that something you're born with? Is that something that's cultivated over yeah, time? That's, that's good. That's good. Uh, I do think it's something you're born with. I think it's something that can be trained. However, the problem with things that can be trained, you will always want to revert back to your natural state, right? And so if your natural state is, um, if it's contentment or if it's, I won't necessarily say laziness, but if it really is just kind of contentment or if it's just that homeostasis type, just at ease process, just that way of being, then yeah, I could tell you to do this and I could tell you to do that, but when I'm not telling you, you're just going to revert back to who you are. Whereas when nobody's egging me on, I'm reverting back to who I am is seeking the next deal, seeking the next business deal, seeking the next show to be on, seeking the next person to meet. So I do think it can be trained, um, but I don't think the training will ever operate as efficiently or as effectively as someone who it's just naturally in. Hmm. Passion versus purpose. Mm -hmm. Which camp do you, do you fall in? I think my purpose drives my passion. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, talk I, about I think, that a little more. I think I'm passionate about a lot of things, but I'm only passionate about them because I know that's really my purpose, right? For example, the NFL. I don't play in the NFL for the money or I don't necessarily pay in the NFL for the fame, but the NFL gives me a platform. It gives me a platform to affect change. It gives me a platform to do a lot of cool stuff, right? Just said very, um, just basically, but just to do a lot of fun, cool stuff that can impact a lot of people. For example, you know, going to a young girl's high school prom last year, um, who she reached out to me and says, Hey, if I get 2000 retweets, will you go to prom with me? I say, if you get 10,000, you got a deal. She gets 20,000 in about four and a half hours. Right. <laughs> so I end up accompanying this young girl to her prom. It's one of the best nights of her life that she says, et cetera. So that only happens because I'm in the NFL for no other reason. So I have a passion to continue to play and be the best that I can be because I know that my purpose lies somewhere within that. So personally, I don't, I don't think those two things can't coexist. I'm a former coach. You know that talk about the competitiveness of the NFL and what it's like to be in that locker room on a daily basis, both in the off season and during the season. You know, what, what does that pressure cooker feel like? Man, it's the toughest. It's the toughest. People don't realize how just how mentally and emotionally 
stressful being in the NFL really is, right? And if you're the Peyton Manning, the Russell Wilson, the Tom Brady, life is great. Um, financially, at least, life is great. I don't, I don't know how they are, you know, in their inner being. But for the other 95% of the guys on the roster, it's a beast. The turnover, more than 50% every year. The injury rate, 100%. Um, now there's a lot more information about concussions, about CTE, other head trauma type um, side effects. So it's it's so stressful. It's so intense um, physically, mentally, emotionally, all draining. But um, game day comes around and it's worth it. You know what I mean? You do all that for game day and it's worth it. And you do all that for, again, the, the platform. It can give you some guys do it for the money. Some guys do it for the fame. But for me, it's all worth it because I walk on the street and this 12-year-old guy comes up to me. Hey, can I have your autograph for no other reason because I play in the NFL? And he'll listen to me regardless of what I tell him for no other reason, because I play in the NFL. So it's all, it's, it's a beast and I, and it's not for everybody. A lot of people sit here and wish and hope that they, it's not for everybody, but it's worth it. I would remember, you know, Saturday nights before a game at the team hotel and you're gearing up for the next day's battle. Talk about that day before game. And going over your assignments and, and what does that mental process feel like? Yeah, the day before the game, that's really my favorite day because the night before, like you're talking about in the hotel, that's where me and my friends, we all just get together. Um, it's snack. You know, you have your snack at around 730 the night before the game. Um, we're sitting in the locker room watching the college games. Everybody's cheering for their college team, arguing. You know what I mean? And, and we're really just telling jokes and fellowshipping. And that's really the highlights and have been the highlights of my time in the NFL is the time with those brothers. I don't really look at too many plays the night before the game because I – I analyze and, and, and like a sponge, taking all my knowledge the week before. If I start looking at stuff too much, I'll overthink it. Um, so even at practice sometimes, practice goes in 12 play sets, and you'll break it down. The first team will run the first four plays. The second team will run the next four. The first team will probably run the last four. When I'm not out there, I don't even watch. And that would contradict a lot of what coaches say. But I don't, I don't want to watch it and then overthink it. I would just rather go out there on a blank slate and do it myself. So night before the game, from a... Game plan standpoint, it's not too stressful for me, I, but I love the night before the game because that's the time you really get to fellowship with those dudes that, that are more than just friends. Now, over the course of your career, you've had a lot of good coaches. What's one coaching practice that you would identify as as being something that if, if you coach at some point, something you would incorporate into your philosophy? I think one of the things that stuck with me the most, um, my freshman year at Texas, I, w I was playing under Will Muschamp. He was a defensive coordinator. He was also a linebacker coach. He's now the head coach at South Carolina. First thing he said, the wisest thing he ever said, was don't listen to the tone, listen to the message. Because he would come out and just start yelling. I mean, cussing, coach yelling, boom. just <laughs> anything and everything. Oh, my God. What was the okay, let me, let me back up. Because Muschamp, I mean, you know, at one point there were shirts from when he, you know, had the bleeding head <laughs> around campus. That first meeting, what were you sitting there thinking as you're listening to Coach Man, go at it? I was like, this dude's crazy. I was like, he is crazy. I mean, I'm sitting there as a freshman. Just this dude's punching clipboards and striking chairs and hairs just swaying each way and. 
I mean, I'm, I came from a private school, all boys private school in, in Dallas, graduated a class of 75. I've never seen anything like this. Um, so I'm thinking this man's crazy. But nonetheless, I, I probably have to give him the most credit for getting me to where I, I needed hmm. to go. Uh, he developed me the most as a player. So how, did, how did he do that? How did he do that? He was so technically sound in his teaching and he was was amazing. He was just very, very technical about everything. Um, He played at Georgia and he wasn't the biggest, wasn't the strongest. I think he was a walk-on, but um, he started off as a walk-on until he earned a scholarship, but he was just incredibly, incredibly technically sound and instilled a toughness in me that no other coach really did as, as, as well as he did. Um, So, between being a technician and instilling a mindset, he really developed my game. I would like to think I'd be in the NFL without him, but I'm not, I can't say for certain. Hmm. Can't say for certain. Hmm. Chip Kelly, and I know you have to be somewhat political. I get it. Uh, any thoughts? You know, because analytics now, growing movement. Many people are wondering at what point does it start to seep into coaching and decision making? You know, with personnel. What were your thoughts on on I'm working for Kelly and, and on the team. I'll start by saying um, Chip Kelly is a great offensive mind, an incredible offensive mind. The best, I mean, obviously I've only played what I played four years in the NFL, played four at Texas, going on year five in the league. So I, I can't say I've been in the game for 50 years, but I've been in the game for a while. And um, one of the best offensive minds I've been around, incredible with scheme with science, with technology, all of that. Um, so I'll, I'll preface with that. With that being said, we did so much from a science standpoint and a technology standpoint, and that does, that definitely helped. But it, it, there's a fine line between if if knowledge is power and power corrupts, and where do you draw the line between having so much knowledge that, okay, knowledge has now become an advantage, but now we're, we're using this knowledge and it's becoming detrimental. Um, because Super Bowls were won before, you know, hydration tests and Super Bowls will be won after, um, Super Bowls were won before all the technology is, is, is coming to things. And again, Super Bowls will be won after we've transitioned past that, but he definitely, I, I applaud him because Chip Kelly doesn't do things the way everybody says they need to be done. And that's the kind of way I am. That's the kind of guy I am because it's been done like this before. It doesn't mean that's how it needs to be done. It can always be improved. So I applaud him for that. Definitely different. But you've seen a lot of his stuff has been successful. And the NFL has taken a lot of what he's done. The other 31 teams have done so. So um, he's definitely a trendsetter. He had a hiccup last season, but uh, such is such happens. So I'm a, I'm definitely a fan of, of, of Chip Kelly, the offensive mind, um, and what he brings to that table. You talked about going from private school, small private school in Dallas, the University of Texas, University of Texas into the NFL. What's been the most difficult transition for you? Man, going from private school to Texas was a harder transition. Going from Texas to the league, back when I was at Texas, we were so good that we were putting six, seven guys in the NFL every year anyway. So, And we're playing the Oklahomas of the world that are doing the same. So going from Texas to the NFL, you're going from playing against maybe six NFL guys to 11 NFL guys on the other side of the ball, but it wasn't that drastic. But going from St. Mark's, where the average offensive lineman in SBC, Southern Preparatory Conference, I attended was probably 5'11", 210, to go into <laughs> to Division One 
powerhouse where the average offensive lineman is closer to 6'3", 315, oh, I mean, there's oh, it pales in comparison. Then beyond that, the demographic of, of my high school, I think 11% minorities, right? And so I went to school with um, mayor's daughters and, and, and governor's kids and, and senator's kids. I mean, I went to school with all Anglo-Saxon, just predominantly white um, or other, you know, type kids. Now I'm at Texas, predominantly black, boys from the hood, boys from the country, boys from every which way. I don't even, I got to figure out how to relate, how to talk, how I got to figure all this stuff out on the fly, mind you. Um, so that was a harder transition. The league, nah, because by then I figured out who I am and that's just who I'm, who I'm going to be. At what point did you figure out who you are? Uh, my sophomore year in college. After I realized, okay, I'm the nerd and I'm going to be the nerd and I'm going to be content being the nerd, right? I was the guy that was going to be in the library. That's just who I was. I was a heck of a football player. So I could be confident in being that because I was still going to ball on Saturday <laughs> in college and everybody knew that. But um, yeah, I was a nerd and I was confident in that. And then I got to the league and I was still that. But now I had a confidence in that. And all that matters in the NFL, all that matters in life, just be confident in who you are, right? You could be the, you could be the jock, you could be the nerd, you could be the businessman, you could be the scientist, the mathematician, whatever it is, just have confidence in that and everybody will respect you that much more. So my sophomore year, I realized, oh, this is just who I am. Well, I'm going to be a heck of a nerd. And so I go on to be academic to all district. I go on to be a semifinalist for that academic Heisman Trophy award. I go on to do all this other brainiac type stuff. And I still get drafted in the NFL. So, yeah, my sophomore year, I figured it out. One thing from your undergraduate career, and we talk to a lot of athletes who will look back at their time in college and say, I wish I had done this. Is there something that you would have changed about your undergraduate experience? I can't say that there's anything I would have changed. The only thing I regret, man, the only thing I regret, from an academic standpoint, I wanted to be an academic All-American, and I'm sick that I wasn't. Uh, I, I think I left college with a 3.43 GPA. That's a good GPA. Uh, and the three, I think just the three twos are cut off to be an academic All-American. I left with the 3.43 and majored in sports management specifically because you had to have at least a 3.0 to get into the sports management program. I wanted to try to do something that was a little more elite, not just go down the easier track, but something that you actually had to apply to get into the sports management school to, to be a sports management major. Somehow I don't end up academic All-American. I, I believe Manti Teo was academic all-american that year and so i was sick of sick and still am as you can probably hear it in my voice <laughs> sick, about, bit. <laughs> sick about that um and then we don't win the national championship my sophomore year sick sick about that man how did still you get over that me. you know i didn't, I didn't want to go into it we, we should how does someone recover from that that season you don't man uh, I, that's the only thing i wanted in college i wanted that i wanted to be an all-american and an academic all-american i got neither um, I wanted to win the national championship. I didn't. Came up second place. <laughs> I, I, I mean, it, I sucks. It sucks. It's, there's no way. To, there's yeah. no way around it. It's it's miserable to think about. But I don't know. I mean, everything else I guess panned out. Like you got drafted. This, that, and the third. You're doing um, pretty well for you. <laughs> <laughs> right? I'm like every everything else panned out. But to get so close to so many things and not win them, I wanted to win a national award. I was. 
a finalist for the Lot Trophy Award. It was myself, Dante Hightower, Luke Keekley, Manti Teo. Luke Keekley won it. Obviously, Luke Keekley just won, I want to say, defensive MVP in the National Football League. Dante Hightower, first-round pick, Manti Teo. I guess infamous for having the alleged fake girlfriend, whatever that whole case was. So I was up there among the greats. Never won it. So I don't know. It It's tough, but that's what drives you to keep freaking pushing forward until you achieve whatever the next goal is. But that is I'm different because I have a problem with goals. Um, people always say, you know, if you set a goal and you write it down on paper, there's a 95% chance you'll achieve it. No, I don't, I don't believe in that. I don't believe in any of that studies. I don't believe in those Harvard studies. I don't know. <laughs> I'm bitter because I've, I've come up too short too many times. <laughs> but, okay, so you don't believe in those resolutions and all the list. None of it. None, None of, of it, man. None, None of, of it. None of it. You just you, you shoot your best freaking shot and you leave with no regrets. And that's why when you ask, do I have any regrets? Not really because I, I couldn't have changed anything. Right. I, I I didn't I don't really think I ever skipped class like genuinely. It's just hard for me to skip class. I don't think I ever came up short on the football field and didn't give it my all. I don't there's nothing else I could have done. I just came up short. I just wasn't good enough. And sometimes good isn't good enough. You know, but you you were able to recover from that experience. There are a lot of people who never get over it. Yeah. Right. That that kind of experience dictates the way they approach the challenges they face from that point forward. It seems like, to a certain extent, you were able to put that in the box and keep moving forward. How do you not let it get to you? I mean, how, I, yeah, I think, like I said, it's innate. It, I'm, I hate losing. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. It could be something stupid. It could be if I trip and my phone stumbles out my hand and I can't catch it. I am furious that I wasn't athletic enough to catch it before it hit the ground. I just hate losing it every aspect of things and so it just drives me it, it like it got oh crush man when i walk through when i walk through the academic center called moncrief and i walk through the football complex excuse me called moncrief and i don't see my face next to any of those national awards oh it gets to me it drives me it just drives me freaking to do the next thing and do and figure out the next big thing and just be the next big thing but it definitely it gets to me but i just use it as a motivation for next time and I make sure I always give it my all so there are no regrets. All right, it's fourth and one. You're on offense. What is your go-to play? So when, when you have to convert, there's a challenge that you're facing, whether it's a book or a podcast or, or a verse or a song, what is, what is your go-to play to push you over the goal line? Instantly, it's, I'm, a, I'm a very religious, spiritual, um, Christian roots type of guy. So I will, I'll pray about everything. Um, but my answer to each prayer may be different, right? So to, to answer your question, fourth and one, I'm not calling the same play every time. You know what I mean? I'm not going to sit there and just run ISO at the middle linebacker every single time. But I will adjust my play based on the situation. So sometimes... It could just be hopping on the piano like I did this morning and just stress relief and just, okay, now attack the situation with a clear head. It could be the verse, um, you know, be strong and courageous for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. It could be that. It could be the song that I listen to before every game, Don't Waste Your Life by uh, the Christian hip-hop artist Lecrae. It could be something different, and it usually is something different. Um, There usually is something, but it's never never the same. So depending on the situation— that dictates yes. 
what you're going to. Exactly. Exactly. Depending on the situation, depending on where my heart's at. Um, piano's up big for me. So usually I'll just hop on the piano because I need that just to, it's just something that puts me at ease, puts my mind, my heart, everything at ease. So that's big for me. But it always depends on the situation. What's the first book that's going to have Emmanuel Acho's name on it? So I plan on writing one um, either to be released in 2017 or 2018 spring. And it'll be um, unlocking your mind to maximize your potential. Right. It'll be it'll be premised around how can I unlock my mind? What I mean by that is think differently. Right. That's why I love what Chip Kelly does, because there's kind of the 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 black swan theory. And like if, if you've never seen a black swan, you don't know what to do when you do see one. Right. And in and, and, and studying sports psychology and in studying the mind, it's if you and I were to walk into a grocery store or if I were to follow you somewhere, even if you took an inefficient route, because by nature, we're usually just followers. I will just follow you down the most inefficient route, whether we're walking through a Six Flags theme park, whatever it is. So I, I really want to help people. Do what hasn't been done and, and really use, try to maximize a mind. I mean, you think about there, there was that one person who he was an autistic, I think teenager, and he drove over the New York skyscraper and painted the whole thing just by flying. He flew over it in a helicopter and painted the whole thing. I said, if this person can do this, then it can be done. Now, obviously he, there are different strengths in, in, in autism that I don't know everything about, but if the mind is this powerful and this capable, then how do we unlock it to try to further achieve greatness? And mm. so I definitely want to touch on that because too often and too many people try to do what's already been done. No, do what hasn't been done, but think differently. But how do you do something that you've never seen? Mm. And that's where I'm trying to. That's what I'm trying to do in my life. Um, and in the broadcasting realm when I'm done playing ball is how do I be the person that hasn't been before? Um, but you got to find the people to help you do that. But how do you, how do you do what's never been done? Let me ask you this. So how, how do you determine when it's time to call an audible on a project, right? So you're going with a project, something else comes up on the horizon for you being the strategist that you are, you've got this plan laid out for, the project you're working on, how do you know when it's time to say, you know what, I've got, I've got, I've got to switch lanes. I never be too cocky to not accept a better idea. <laughs> That's all it is. It's, it's humility, uh, because I mean, I spent my rookie year. I spent at least a hundred hours working on a startup of my own. Um, it was going to be kind of a because of the the transition of, of cell phones and how we're always on them at restaurants. Just a online ordering process when you're in the restaurant to have everything be able to be done digitally. Kind of like you get on an airplane, you go log on to the Wi-Fi, it instantly directs you to, to go-go internet. You go in a restaurant, you log on to the Wi-Fi, it instantly directs you to um, to the to the website where you can simply order. It kind of eliminates or at least makes more efficient the waiters, etc. Um, we developed it, developed everything, the interface system, how it would look, the mock-ups, the, the pitch deck, me and my business partner. And we got to the point where we need financing and we could have pushed forward. Called an audible. So, and mind you, I spent my whole freaking off season in grad school and doing that and working out. Called an audible. It just wasn't a good idea. Not even it wasn't a good idea, but there could have been a better. There was a better idea. Um, so, yeah, you just have to be humble, man. And it sucks sometimes. But you do it. <laughs> Emmanuel, appreciate it, man. Thank you. Thank you. We enjoyed having you. 
and uh, wishing you well. You've got a lot of projects on the horizon, so wishing you well in all your endeavors. Thank you for listening to A Tribe Called Yes. For more information, you can visit us at atribecalledyes.com and be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. And don't forget, keep saying yes. Yes.